Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Emily Towns, the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of African American Religion and Theology, speaking about how the interplay of religion and politics shapes public discourse about race in the run-up to the presidential election. Four Little Girls, Carol Robertson, Carol Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley. Four little young black girls who arrived at Sunday School for Youth Day at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama on September 15, 1963. One was 11 years old, the other three were 14. Four little girls living in the midst of the racial turmoil that marked Birmingham and so much of the United States. Killed when a bomb planted by a Ku Klux Klansman who opposed integration ripped through the basement of their church, killing them as they were buried underneath the rubble in a blast that blew out the face of Jesus in the stained glass window and stopped the church clock. This disturbing blend of religion and politics was one answer to the role that religion, and the black church in particular, was playing in helping to organize against the racist politics of U.S. life that was a part of all of our society and not just the South. As we look at contemporary U.S. society and think once again about the interplay of religion and politics in our worlds, we are met with an amazing smorgasbord of ways in which this plays out the most recent of which is Senator Barack Obama's speech on race that was prompted by the firestorm of criticism heaped on Pastor Emeritus of his church, the Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright. It is too simple to think of the interplay of religion and politics only in terms of conservatives and liberals in religious and political camps. True, the rise of the religious right in the late 1970s and 1980s has provided clear examples of what happens when religious values are consciously wedded with electoral politics and public policy. And we often point to the role of black churches in being crucial to help organize the, and provide spiritual sustenance to the civil rights campaign of the 1950s and 1960s. But there is much more at stake here as we think through the various religious communities we have in the United States now and how we interpret the founding documents of our country, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. One of the sources I often appeal to in my own teaching and work in religion and politics is the late former Congresswoman from Texas, Barbara Jordan. Jordan was a woman of firsts first black woman to serve an administrative assistant to the county judge of Harris County, Texas, first black elected to the Texas State Senate since 1883, first black woman to deliver the keynote address at the Democratic Party Convention in 1976, first black person to be buried in the state cemetery in Te Austin, Texas in 1996. And those of us who remember or, or have heard the recording of the crisp bell tones of her perfect diction and impeccable cadence will never forget her testimony before the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate, primetime television, July 25th, 1974. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, We the People.
It is a very eloquent beginning, but when the document was completed on the 17th of September, 1787, I felt I was not included in that we the people. I felt that somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in we the people. Today, I am an inquisitor. I believe hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Now, I am struck with the profound trust she had in the notion, we the people. Jordan was the daughter of a Baptist preacher and a devout practicing Baptist her whole life. One of the bedrock principles she lived her life by was that human equality under God is categorical, absolute, unconditional, and universally applicable. So when she said, we the people, she really did mean all of us. Now, because she was a public servant, she did not do much overt God talk in her public addresses. But her faith was not easily checked at the door. And the more rectitude she learned growing up in the church was not something she thought of as a good political strategy to pull out when trying to convince her colleagues or the rest of the country that her ideas were right. Her moral conviction that we, the people, is not something we can just check at the door of gerrymandered elections or specious claims of weapons of mass destruction. Her profound trust, her profound belief in we, the people, is one way that we can begin to think about the interrelationship between religion and politics and the various ways in which this relationship plays itself out on the contemporary domestic and global stages. First, it is important to note that it is bad faith to think that any political party or agenda represents the will of God, the divine, a higher power, the transcendent. Not even when we think a religious stance is in the driver's seat of that political party or political movement. Although we have never created the perfect firewall between the church and the state in the United States, our ongoing attempts to do so help to grow a vibrant republic and a deep-walking democracy that welcomes and understands the various religious convictions that can fuel our public acts. And this leads to an important second point. We must begin to learn more about the various religions that make up the social and cultural landscapes of the United States and beyond. We often live in caricatures of various religions and sometimes our own religious convictions rather than understand the richly textured histories and theologies and philosophies that are represented in our contemporary religious lives. Even the founding mythos of the United States as a Christian nation is much more complex than this. As founders such as Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Adams, and George Washington were members of mainline Christian denominations such as Presbyterian and Episcopalian while also being influenced by deism with its emphasis on reason and personal experience and coming to know the nature and existence of God. As we take time to understand the differences found within Christianity 
Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, earth religions, and so on. We can begin to appreciate the variety of ways in which religion often sweeps into our political discourses, often unconsciously, because we do not even realize that we are functioning out of religious values and virtues. This is particularly important at this moment in U.S. electoral politics, when religion often becomes collateral damage in political battles. To be sure, taking time to understand the differences between Shia and Sunni Islam, Vishnava and Shiva Hinduisms, or Theravada and Zen Buddhism can be a demanding or difficult task, but this is some of the responsibilities we must embrace in living out the words of the Constitution, we, the people. We must have dreams that are more powerful than nightmares, responsibilities more radical than realities, and a hope that does more than cling to a wish or wish on a star or sit by the side of the road picking and sucking its teeth after dining on a meal of disaster and violence that is our lives. We must live out of a democratic vision that lets folks know that justice and peace mean something and are more than rhetorical ruffles and flourishes. None of us can hide from any of the isms, obscene wars declared in our name, but without our permission or consent, HIV AIDS, terrorism, and the wicked mixing of jingoism with the death of innocence in our national mourning. This never relieves any of us, no matter how young or how old, of the responsibility that we have to our generation and future generations to keep justice and peace alive and vibrant beacons in shaping of our American history and our American story. To put it more bluntly, a healthy blend of religion and politics reminds us that we are not called to be poster children for the status quo. One of the compelling ways that religion and politics has been brought together recently has been the uproar caused when Fox News aired three or four highly calculated 20-second incendiary sound bites from the Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright Jr.'s sermons as representative of a 36-year pastorate in which Wright consistently spoke out against sexism, homophobia, the spread of HIV-AIDS, economic empowerment, and did so through a Christocentric theology that was and remains unashamedly Christian and unapologetically black. It is problematic when any of our ideas are reduced to a soundbite or an excerpt and then treated as the totality of what we believe or how we live out our religious values. The charge of anti-Americanism and racism was spattered over Reverend Wright and then attributed to the true feelings of presidential candidate Barack Obama. The reaction to Wright's comments were, are intriguing when placed alongside of the now deceased leader of the Christian right, Francis Schaeffer. Wright's controversial remarks are that God should damn America for our racism and violence. He says, we bombed Hiroshima, we bombed Nagasaki, and we nuked far more than the thousands in New York and the Pentagon, and we never batted an eye. We have supported state terrorism against the Palestinian and black South Africans. And now we are indignant because the stuff we have done overseas is now brought back to our own front yards. Americans' chickens have come home to roost. Schaefer, who denounced America and sometimes called for the violent overthrow of the United States government, was invited to lunch with Presidents Ford, Reagan, and Bush Sr. 
Far from being branded as unpatriotic, Schaefer and other Christian right preachers who deem America evil because of abortion, gay rights, and teaching evolution saw us, like Reverend Wright, as a nation under God's judgment and tempting destruction from within. When writing about civil disobedience in his classic, A Christian Manifesto, Schaefer says, if there is a legitimate reason for the use of force against the United States government, then at a certain point, force is justifiable. It is time we consciously realize that any office commands that is contrary to God's law, it abrogates its authority. And our loyalty to the God who gave this law then requires that we take the appropriate response in that situation. Now, rather than disassociate themselves from Schaefer's Jeremiah, Jack Kemp, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan all met with him and shared meals with him and mourned his passing in 1984 as that of a great American. We must ask, what are the reasons for Schaefer's impassioned call for the United States to write its course is patriotic, and Wright's call to do the same is viewed as treason. Part of the reason, I think, is that most Americans are not part of the black church and have only cursory awareness of black lives and have little to hang their hat on when it comes to black anger and critique, and even more so when it comes from black Christian religious authorities such as Reverend Wright. As much as I appreciated Senator Obama's speech on race in response to the firestorm of critique against Reverend Wright and his alleged condoning of Wright's words, it only clarified how much more we need to continue to walk into the very old wounds we have regarding race and racism. I have not heard a politician attempt such a thoughtful speech in the midst of a political firestorm before. However, Senator Obama's dismissal of Wright's analysis of racism is that of an old uncle who knows only protest politics, and Obama's suggestion that overt racial discrimination is a thing of the past were off-base and naive. Senator Obama set up a dichotomy in which Reverend Wright's generation of black Christian folk is embittered and angry. It is troubling to me that Senator Obama made no mention of the ways in which black communities in Reverend Wright's generation raised their children with love and taught them to seek self-worth and dignity in spite of the larger racist whirlwind. Senator Obama notes the frustrations of whites who believe that affirmative action has taken opportunities away from them. But he does not name the fact that white rage led to lynching countless black men, women, and children in carnivalesque gatherings, complete with postcards featuring noosed bodies or charred corpses, or massacring thriving black communities like Rosewood, Florida in 1923, or Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. In other words, there is so much more there, there, that we need to be open as citizens of this country, the city on the hill. For once we are open, then maybe we can begin to know each other more fully and begin to forge a better way into Jordan's clarion call to live, we the people of the United States. It is my hope that those four little girls, Carol Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson are not historical artifacts of the horror of what can go wrong when we blend religion and politics and then stir in a healthy dose of hatred and fear with ignorance and elitism as maid and butler. 
Rather, as we learn more about the various religions that shape us as a nation and shape other nations and cultures, we will live into more democratic selves that build this republic into a vibrant democracy that recognizes that religiosity is only one arc into what can make this nation great. That is, perhaps, the most profound challenge that marks this electoral season and in the years to come. That was Emily Towns, the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of African American Religion and Theology and President of the American Academy of Religion, speaking of politics and religion. This was recorded as part of Yale's Election 2008 series of podcasts on March 26, 2008.